And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back, back for another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here to have another conversation I'm hoping helps your business grow. And with that, have you failed? Because if you're an entrepreneur and you tell me you haven't failed, I'm probably going to call you out and say there's no possible way that that could ever occur. So how do you overcome failure? We're going to talk about that today. I've got a super successful founder and entrepreneur ready to have that chat with me today. Before I introduce him, today's episode of Startup Hustles powered by Fullscale.io. Hiring software developers is difficult and Fullscale can help you build a software team quickly and affordably and has the platform to help you manage that team. Go to fullscale.io to learn more. There's a link for that in the show notes. With me today, I've got Michael Selden. Michael is the CEO and co-founder of Finless Foods. Go to finlessfoods.com to learn more. There's a link for that in the show notes, F-I-N-L-E-S-S, foods.com, straight out of Emeryville, California. Michael, welcome to Startup Hustle. Thanks so much, Matt. I appreciate you having me on. You ready to talk about what failures we've been in the past? Uh, I think that will like to, to fully cover that would take longer than this podcast, but yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But you know, uh, yeah, it, and I'm going to let you give more of the backstory, mm-hmm. but you're doing some really, really interesting stuff at Finless Foods. And I want to point out that I like to thank people that do things that are sometimes I don't want to say it's completely thankless, but you're saving the ocean. You're creating food sources. You're doing a lot of great stuff. I think a lot of people overlook that and don't say thank you. So first off, I want to just say thanks because man, the ocean's a mess and anyone that's doing anything to fix that is awesome. And we'll get into that, but how about we just start a conversation with a little bit about your backstory? Yeah. So for me, um, I've done a lot of different things. I like went to school for biochemistry and molecular biology at a school that's mostly focused on agriculture, uh, UMass Amherst out in Western Massachusetts. And um, I got into that because I just saw a bunch of problems in the food system. I was always doing environmental activism, like even as a kid, like, um, like basically like electoral stuff around where I grew up on the North shore of Boston. Uh, I'm from Salem. And from that, I like got into this idea of like, Hey, animal agriculture is not giving us the environmental outcomes that we need. And it's this huge part of the way that humans interact with the environment. Everyone's focused on cars and like power, and those are very important, but agriculture is an absolutely massive part of the way we interact with the planet. And animal agriculture in particular, while being something that all of us kind of love, it's also like the biggest um, producer of carbon, it's the biggest land use, it's all of these like massive uh, parts of agriculture. So when I was younger, I got really into the idea that like we could all just go vegan and we would never like eat meat again, and then that would be the solution. As I got older, I just sort of saw that like that wasn't what was happening, you know, and I sort of got this like uh, like mindset from science really early of we you know should look at what we're doing, seeing if it's working or not doing and edit our hypothesis based on that. 
So I was sort of seeing like, hey, like this isn't catching off in a way, uh, catching on in a way that is fast enough to actually create the environmental solutions that we need. We have to start doing things differently. And for a while, that meant that I just had no idea about what to do. But eventually, um, I came across this article where people had created um, had created horseshoe crab blood without horseshoe crabs. Horseshoe crab blood is really important for the pharma industry. It's how we test to make sure things like vaccines are safe. Hmm. Um, and horseshoe crabs, we're running out of them. Like, there's just not that many. They're extremely hard to breed. They're very strange. If you want to Google them, they're worth looking at because they're a very weird-looking creature. Um, and I was basically got to thinking, you know, if we can make horseshoe crab blood without horseshoe crabs, can't we just make any animal product without animals? And also, didn't I have the background to do that, being an agricultural biochemist? So I got thinking about this. But at the time, I wasn't working in the industry. I had graduated college. I felt uh, uncultured. I wanted to learn another language. And so I had moved to China in order to first be a high school chemistry teacher. I got a job. And then after that, I wanted to work myself up into a translator job. So I started working at a newspaper uh, as a translator, translating Chinese into English. Um, after that, moved to New York, where my parents are from, um, ended up working at a hospital. Just was not super inspired by it. I, you know, talking about thankless jobs, like I really want to thank everybody who works in healthcare everyone who works in hospitals, because it is a really brutal job. It is totally True. thankless True. Um, in so many ways, especially like people on the back end, the research techs doing like the lab sample work, things like that. Um, the nurses who have to deal with patients for way, way longer than any, any doctor does. Um, but that said, it wasn't for me. Um, I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was doing what I wanted to do. And so I ended up like getting hooked into this organization called New Harvest, which funds people doing PhDs in cellular agriculture. This science of, um, you know, creating animal products without animals. It was this totally new industry. It was mostly just a Google drive with, uh, about like 150 papers in it and like 50 people with access to it. And that was all of cellular agriculture. Um, at that point, like Memphis meats had founded, uh, which now is called upside foods. They do chicken and pork. Um, but that was kind of it. Um, this guy, Mark post in the Netherlands had created a burger. Um, and then other than that total white space, no one had done anything. So I was going to do a PhD in this, um, but basically I got intercepted by some venture capitalists who sort of said, hey, like, um, why don't you make this into a company? And my attitude was like, well, I don't want to, you know, uh, sort of something that we talked about before we started recording. Like, I don't want to sell out, man. I don't want to like, create a, a business and I have no idea how to do that. Um, but they really captured my interest because they're like, well, if you're doing a PhD, you're a little bit on your own. You know, you'll have your PI to help you out, your professor, but you're kind of uh, doing this all on your own with a company, you can have a ton of people behind you. Um, and that was really convincing to me. Like, do I want to do this project entirely alone or do I want to do this with a ton of people? So I went this route. I ended up taking venture capital. I, um, grabbed a co-founder, which is my best friend, Brian Wyrus. We went to college together. We've known each other for 12 years now, moved out to San Francisco and started Finless. Now it's 45 of us, uh, full-time we've raised, you know, about $50 million so far. And <laughs> we have this cool pilot facility that we built in Emeryville. Um, and so, you know, it's it's been a long journey and it's certainly not been without failure, but that's where we came from and that's where we are today. Well, I, you know, we're here to talk about failure and, and that wasn't necessarily a tale of that. Um, obviously, $50 million in funding and a lot of progress. And one thing I, that's pretty interesting, you mentioned intercepted by venture capitalists. Uh, I've had several uh, several episodes in the past, including one with a professor of, of entrepreneurship from Princeton, a guy named Derek Leto, who has written the book on the subject of entrepreneurship. And you know, he was just so adamant when we recorded 
I think if, you, if you're interested in listening, I believe that episode's called The History of Entrepreneurship. But just talking about how entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship in general have moved the needle so significantly, well, on some things that are good and some things that are bad. But, you know, at the same time, like you talk about your ability to, well, you, you, you mentioned having an environmental outlook, being a scientist and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, hey, you know, you could actually put some of this into play, but there's a commercial nature to it. I don't think it's a bad thing. I mean, it's, it's sometimes difficult to monetize that. Now, when we talk about like, let's talk about, quote, failure for a second here and how to overcome it. I would imagine. Uh, so you mentioned you once again use the term intercepted. I don't know if you got funded right out of that or if you had to actually go out and pitch for some of it. But I would imagine that that going into the pitch meeting, hey, we're going to reinvent food. And you like, I mean, how does that go? That's got to run into some failures or adversity. I would imagine you hear, we only enter, we only invest in enterprise software um, or something like that. But is, is that worse? How did you, am I right about some yeah. of that pushback? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's been failure up and down the line, you know, like what I just said was sort of like the rosy story of like how we got started, but I yeah. mean, the whole company even started with failure, like in starting to do my like research on what would have been a PhD. Um, I ended up like actually getting fired from my job at the hospital um, for, for a bunch of reasons. But I, a part of it was just I was not paying any attention. I was so concentrated on this um, and getting fired is like what pushed me into doing this. Like I took that as like an opportunity, I guess. And I was like, well, I need to have money in order to survive. So I need to make this work one way or another. Um, but yeah, even in terms of VCs, I mean, like when we took um, the money from IndieBio, which was the first money into the company, we were really pitching based on the environment because that was why we started doing this. Um, but VCs don't necessarily care about that. Um, yeah. Capitalists don't necessarily care about that. I remember one initial pitch meeting, IndieBio would have you pitch in front of the entire accelerator along and, and like four investors who would be sort of a panel to judge you in a sort of a fake pitch competition. I remember I got singled out in front of the entire crowd by an investor who said, your entire pitch was on how this will help the environment and you have nothing about how you'll make money in this process. I don't give a fuck about the environment and I don't want to hear you talk about it ever again. And I was like, wow, no, that is a, that is a firm, firm thing to Maybe say. Not the right investor as well. Definitely not. We didn't yeah. end up working with him, but <clears throat> you know, he did have some sort of point where it's like, it does, they do need to make a return on their funds. So we did need to alter our argument yeah. if we wanted to be successful. Um, and then, yeah, plenty of pitch meetings don't work out. I mean, like, you know, software is sexy. It's like a really easy thing to scale and it is really, um, you know, easy to make edits to with us. We're limited by biology, you know, we're making a physical thing. And so we need to actually take time in order to change it. You know, we need to actually make something up to the specifications that it needs to be made to in order to get to market. We need to get through regulatory approval. We just started selling this plant-based product, for example. And it turns out that like we didn't have all the right certifications that we needed in order to get there. Um, and now we have to like completely change the way that our like production line works in order to actually get it there. Um, you know, there's a lot of like failure points in there around um, us being a physical goods company. And that's hard. Um, you know, that said, I mean, we can, you know, we're going towards an absolutely massive market, which is all of seafood. We have a, new, a unique angle. We're the only people who can do tuna of any variety, never mind bluefin, the only people who've scaled that up into large scale bioreactors. So, you know, I think we have a strong argument that we can do something pretty massive. It's sort of like the road less traveled. Software is easier, it's sexier. There's a lot of people going for it because of that. 
this stuff is harder. It takes some time, but like we're alone. Like we really are just sort of the only people, which is good and it's bad. It's good because it means I don't have to worry too much about competition. It's bad because I care about the environment. And if we like fail, then there isn't really much of a safety net for the environment on what we're trying to do. So it's, it's a little nerve wracking at times too. So when you talk, you know, uh, do you think that your history with science helped you become a better entrepreneur when it came to dealing with failure? Because I feel like so much about, I mean, if you're not, show me the scientists who had a successful experiment every time. And once again, I'm going to call someone out because if you're not failing and then you're probably not doing it right. Oh, yeah. I mean, like the scientific outlook helped and also um, starting the company kind of young, also really helped. Like I was about 25 when we started this company. I'm 32 now. And so like it, it was helpful to just not have a domain expertise, like not to feel like I was the smartest person in the room because it meant I was genuinely listening to people. Um, and that helps because like you're saying, every entrepreneur is going to fail a ton, totally including me, um, including like us, myself and my co-founder. But because we were young and we were scientists, like what's funny is that your experiment Whenever you're designing an experiment as a scientist, it has like a hypothesis and a null hypothesis. Um, an experiment isn't a failure if you don't get the results that you like want. An experiment's a failure if you don't get results. And so like doing something and having it not work, that is a result. And to a scientist, that actually is a success because it means you did the thing and it didn't work. But the question then is that if you're a scientist, how do you build that into your process? Do you learn from that? Do you actually work that into your plans going forward? Or do you take the non-scientific approach and you ignore it? There's plenty of entrepreneurs who take the like move fast, break things approach in a, in a bad direction around just like, yeah, I'm not going to pay attention to my mistakes. Um, and it's like, you do need to move past them. You need to not get like emotionally caught up in them. Um, but you do need to like reckon with them. You know, like when we first started the company, we like just didn't know how to run a business. We hired extremely poorly. We asked questions that were like about confirming our own biases with the people we were talking to. We wanted to be too nice to people and we didn't reject a bunch of people that we should have rejected. And it really stymied us. It like really like set us back a long ways. We brought in people who were stubborn. We brought in people who were unwilling to look at their mistakes. We brought in people who were unwilling to admit when they didn't know things. And it hurt us a ton. And I would say that was some of the biggest failures we had right off the bat. Um, Obviously, there's also the failures of like, well, we tried all these different cellular isolation protocols to like build cell culture tuna and they didn't work. But um, I think more importantly to the company was sort of the structural stuff we did that did not work um, and that we were able to move past and learn from. You mentioned the fail fast and move fast and break things approach. That doesn't work if you don't examine the failure. That's I mean, that's so it's not just about charging through the China shop like a bull. It's, you know, so I'm going to try to break this down pretty, because I, I compare my entrepreneurship and the things that I do to science all the time. In fact, if I go tell my wife, hey, I got to go work on some science, that means I'm about to lock myself in my office and I'll be out when I'm done. And that's usually because I'm on to something and I want to figure some stuff out. But when you look at like the scientific approach and we'll just use full scale as an example, like until I've tried something or done something, especially with things related to sales and marketing, how can we say that that isn't like the, the thing that's going to pop the cork on the business that's going to, you know, take us to the moon? And, you know, I, I, my approach as an entrepreneur for, I'm at, okay, you're 32. I'm, I'm pushing 50, bro. So like, 
then down the road, and I look back at a lot of students, so a common question you'll get when you're older is, oh, looking back at your history as an entrepreneur, like what's, how did your approach evolve or whatever? I tell people all the time, I, I try 10 things hoping, and I want to key the word hoping, this is italics and bold and maybe red, hoping that one works. But when I find that one thing that works, it's like a crack. You find this crack, and now my first priority is to try to shove an elephant through it. You know, so you're out there looking for things that you can, I personally, at this point, rest and feel better knowing that I tried a bunch of stuff and tested it out and don't, like, I want to know. I want I want the failure. I want to disprove that certain things work. And I do kept, I do prove myself to be wrong. And that's actually a pretty good feeling because even though you're wrong in your assumption, you're right for the business. And that's a good thing. And that's a good thing. And it's like, you know, I don't know. I'm not a true scientist in the regard. Like I don't, well, I do actually create hypothesis. I mean, I don't do it full on science fair. I don't build the little diorama thing and the little stand, although I should. I, I might actually do that. I might, I might get more adoption from my team if I treated it like a science fair. but, but yeah, but, but with that, there is, there is that approach now um, with, you know, and so like, I, like I said, like for me, when it's overcoming failure, that failure is more, it's still a win. Hmm. So. Yeah, absolutely. And like it, and you, not only that, but you need to like also bring people in who feel the same. It's really hard having people on board who like can't do that process at a startup because there's so few of you, you need everyone to operate so independently. People need to be examining their own mistakes. They can't be like, you can't bring in people who are just going to be led to their mistakes and then be resistant towards examining them. Like that's one of the things that we look for like the most, we set up some core company values, one of which is like uh, opportunities through failure, like, you know, treat failures as an opportunity and like use it to go forward from there. Um, We've had to do that a ton in Finless and we're going to continue uh, having to do that a ton. Yeah, you know, as a, as a leader as well, I'll, even though sometimes I feel fairly certain that people on my team will fail with a specific approach or idea, I oftentimes will let them attempt it because I think that also helps with team buy-in. Like you can't just squash everyone's idea all day, every day, because it's not yours. Um, and then, you know, you look at, well, like salespeople are a good example. So anytime I get a, a new sales people or whatever, um, because we, you know, we only bring in a specific type of client that fits a specific profile. And sometimes I'll let people bring in the wrong kind of client so they can experience why we don't do that, Hmm. you know? So it's not, so it doesn't just turn into me saying, no, we can't, no, you can't sign this up. No, you can't sign this company up. No, because in the salesperson's mind, they're just think you're squashing their commission. You know, so you let them experience that and dude, it just takes one. And then yeah. the rest of the time they're like, okay, I get it. You know, so I yeah. totally feel that way. There are some lessons that people can't learn verbally. There are some lessons that you have to learn by doing. Yep. And that sounds like a really good example of that. Um, there's definitely times where people have like um, brought in contractors, for example, where I'm like, I don't think this is going to work. And I, I'd like stay my opinion, but I'm like, but you're in the driver's seat, it's your contractor. 
you know, sometimes people just have to go through that process of like bringing in the wrong people and letting them go. Um, I also think that nobody does like, it's not like a fun topic to talk about, but I don't think anybody does firing the right way, like their first go or even their second go. Yeah. I think you can do that like a handful of times to actually understand like what that's supposed to be, you know, in order to like keep yourself like, you know, uh, legally safe in the process and also be respectful to the person that you're letting go. Because I think that's a really key part of the process is like making sure that it's like, hey, this just wasn't the fit. It's not like an indictment of you as a person. Um, and I don't think you can learn it verbally. I've never seen someone do it right the first time or the second time. Yeah, I, but it's, uh, I once had a job where part of my job was to fire people. Um, feels bad. It, yeah, it does, I mean, honestly, it never feels great. I feel like the, as the leader at, at the company now, when I have to do that, I feel like I'm the one that failed, not them. When it comes to firing people, that should take less than like two minutes because there's nothing they're going to say or do that's going to change your mind about it. So like sitting there and getting into this like 30 minute breakdown of like all the things that they didn't do right or whatever isn't really that great either. Just get it done. I mean, I would say other than like in some like really extreme circumstances, which are super rare, you know, not to like, you know, be like, yeah, it is but like put to put it on me. I think that is our fault. I think that if you're letting someone go, that's a problem with your hiring process, a problem with our hiring process. And I think it is on leadership. Like if you're letting someone go, I would say it's the fault of the leadership of that company for creating a process that let that person come in in the first place. You know, that's like a, a chance for introspection to be like, hey, what did we do wrong here? Why do we bring this person in? What can we do next time if there is a thing that we can do to try and avoid the situation? Because it's bad for everyone. It's bad for that person. They get jostled around. It's bad for the company. You waste a lot of resources training someone up. It probably causes some internal strife. Um, I, I try and I make everything. I'm like, people should take responsibility. However, responsibility always lies with management. It's always at the top oh, yeah. of the food chain, not the bottom. Well, the responsibility thing's key. I'm going to talk about that. Now, if you've been failing at building your software team, let FullScale help because finding expert software developers doesn't have to be difficult, especially when you visit FullScale.io where you can build a software team quickly and affordably. Use the FullScale platform to define your technical needs and see what available developers, testers, and leaders are ready to join your team. Visit FullScale.io. If you're not aware, that's my company and we love talking to Startup Hustle listeners head on over to fullscale.io. It takes about two minutes to fill out the form. It takes way less time than that to click the link for Fenless Foods and learn more about what they're doing over there. Um, you know, I want to talk about responsibility for a second because I, I think that that is a keyword. I'm really glad you brought that up because when it comes to overcoming failure, taking responsibility for it is a big thing. And while this is a little, uh, you know, I'm going to, I've got a little thing that I give in presentations sometimes regarding this, and this isn't exactly related to what we're talking about, but the inability to take responsibility for your own actions and your own failures can be really catastrophic when it comes to leadership and just your existence in life. And a great example is if you've known anyone that showed up to work and they got, they just got a speeding ticket and they're like, how dare that police officer give me that ticket? What an asshole. And you're like, man, that guy's doing his job. He's technically trying to keep you safe. And second off, you're the one that went 20 miles and you were the one going 45 through a school zone, you know, and, and that's just that simple. And I'll tell you for when it comes to your own employees or being an employee, if you take responsibility for failure, it goes over way better than a hundred thousand excuses about this and that. And, and that gets old for me in a hurry. If I hear someone say, man, 
I could I could have done a way better job at this and I'm going to next time. That's going to work out way better for that person, both short and long term, most likely than 37 excuses or blaming or any of that stuff. So, you know, take I, I do it all the time as a leader, Michael. I, you know, like I just uh, got back from the Philippines and I was halfway through my trip and I realized that I had made a really bad leadership error with the way that I had aligned some of our sales team. And I had someone in Kansas City trying to set up to try to kind of train and manage a team that was 9,000 miles away. And I realized I was like, this is a terrible idea. Mm. So I changed the course right there on the spot and I ate that crow. Um, I, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you make crows too, but they don't, they don't taste very good when you have to eat them. They're not as tasty as, as tuna, but but yeah, and so that goes over a lot better in, in that regard. And just, just take it, eat it, get it over with. They say if you're going to eat a frog, it just—it's best to not sit around and look at it. It just gets uglier and wartier and grossier, grosser the more you look at it. So just get it out of the way. Exactly, and like it sounds like you're sort of talking about like there's like the the direct ten like the direct benefits of introspecting, looking at what you've done wrong, owning up to it and thinking about it. And there's the like um, drag along benefits, which is like you're setting a good example. If you're in leadership, like I'm maybe there's some company somewhere that's like perfect in this way, but like there's not. It's like I think everywhere (laughs) there's at least some degree of aping leadership of like people see the top of the company and act the way the top of the company acts. There's obviously certain people who are exceptions to that who are like, I'm a loner, I'll do whatever I want. You know, good for those people, they're the minority. Like the vast majority of people look to leadership for cues on how they're supposed to act. So if they see leadership consistently being like, Yeah, you know, like, you know, even if even if you're like the cop was an asshole, you're like, Well, I probably shouldn't have gone 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. Like that's just not safe for the communities that we're in. Uh, And so it's like showing that kind of thing, even in like casual conversation, the ability to introspect, the ability to admit when you're wrong, it creates a safe space. It creates an environment where other people can do the same. Other people can be like, all right, so it's safe. The CEO admits when the CEO is wrong, I can admit when I'm wrong too. And we can all do it together. It creates this good feedback loop. Um, well, let's talk about that for a second, because, you know, you mentioned like marching that, that uh, founders inherently march to the beat of a different drummer. In a lot of cases, like you did it, you're trying to invent some new categories. The reason I started full scale was I was tired of freelance marketplaces and not having people that were dedicated to my team, to my success. The vetting was shitty. Um, you know, I, and I wanted to provide a better, more secure solution for founders that wanted to protect intellectual property, have the right people. You know, I was going to, you know, I won't name the platforms, but I'm sure you can figure them out. I'm like, why do I have to hire 10 people to find one person that's good? What if there was, cause that was so distracting. It was shitty for the team. I feel like it was probably shitty for the contractors and, you know, so you got to march to the beat of a different drummer in the beginning and do something and do something different. But then you also got to evolve back to like a little bit more of a you have to be a little more conforming because like, as you mentioned, you can't just always be that fuck you, fuck everyone kind of person because you're going to create a culture downstream that is that same way. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like I don't know if you've watched the, uh, the there's a like a seven part series about Uber on Showtime. And they had that exact problem because they had to have that FU mentality because they were every city they went into, they had to fight, 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 fight. 
But the problem was, is they weren't able to retract from that. So they had a bunch of FU people. Like one of the big, one of the first interview questions was, are you an asshole? And they didn't hire people that said no. Because they needed fighters. And, mm-hmm. and that while that was good at one point, it also now all of a sudden you've got all these hungry gorillas like, ah, you yeah. know, and it created a really crappy culture. So what are some of the things that have changed with your company and you when it comes to like that evolution? Because you talk about having 45, 45 people. There's a lot of responsibility with taking $50 million and, and all that. Yeah, I mean, um, certainly what we look for in hiring has evolved massively. Like we have these core values that we look for. We have um, cultural cues that we look for from people. You know, we also took a scientific approach. We're like, all right, we like the team we got. How do we replicate that? So we tried to sort of like talk to people and like figure out like, all right, what do we all have in common? And we found some kind of interesting stuff. You know, we found that everyone at Finless like is always uh, is a lifelong learner. It's people who actively are trying to improve themselves in things that aren't even necessarily tied to their work and oftentimes are not. And, you know, there's definitely a bunch of theories on staff of like how that ties into the culture and how that ties into our work. But as scientists, we were just like, it doesn't even really matter why. It's just a thing that ties us all together. And so we should continue to look for that because clearly that's some sort of good indicator of the stuff that we want, regardless of like the mechanistic explanation of how that plays out. We you know, we came from not a business background, we came from like a, you know, environmental activism. And so we had this idea around the beginning of the company of like, all right, we're going to be super um, egalitarian, we're going to be very flat, we're going to be very horizontal, we're going to like all make decisions together. And it drove people crazy. Um, It was not it did not work for us. Um, It did not work for like a high growth startup. It does not work if there's like a lot of complicated decisions that need to get made. Um, And we ended up moving away from that. Now we are in like a pretty hierarchical structure. We have a lot of feedback mechanisms so that leadership can actually get information from like other sections of the company. But we realized that like the key thing really is that you need um, people in leadership to just be very informed and then empower those people to make all the decisions that they need to make. And like that is a better structure for this type of company than just uh, everyone like voting on things. Um, you know, we were sort of looking at these models that like work where people vote on things, but these are more traditional businesses. A lot of the time, it's like a grocery store or like a farm and like, you know, how to run grocery stores and farms. There's nothing crazy innovating going on there. Or like you can build things in that are innovative, um, but you don't have to, you can always fall back on the more traditional business model for us. It's like, there's just a ton of decisions that need to get made on a very regular basis that are hard. So it's about creating a process by which decisions are made that people are like, that's a fair process. I'm informing the person at the top of all the things they need to be informed of. I have my shot at informing them and then they make the decision and we run with it and we then examine the decision, see if it worked out well or not, and then talk about how we would do it differently next time. And like this has been just a way more effective structure for us than sort of the more horizontal structure that we started off with. So that was another thing we implemented that was, I would say, a failure. And then we moved back more towards a more um, traditional model with a lot of like feedback loops in it. Um, and that's just worked out a lot better for us. You can't innovate on everything all at once. You know, we're trying to basically just like minimize the amount of things that we are innovating on because we are already doing something that's kind of crazy. We're trying to like create this thing that will totally change the way seafood is thought about in on the entire planet. We're trying to create seafood using animal cell culture. We're trying to create seafood using plant-based agriculture. We're not also going to, you know, um, 
build an entirely new type of bioreactor that nobody's ever thought of. Like we're not building an entirely new type of media development or recycling that nobody's ever thought of. And we're not building an entirely new type of corporate structure that nobody's ever thought of. I think that is a thing that could use innovation, but I think we have enough on our plate and we want to keep our conversations around the things that we need to keep them on, namely like this cell line development, scaling up in these large bioreactors, getting things to market, getting through regulatory. Um, it's hard enough. So we pick, we picked our areas of innovation. And I think that works better for us now. I think one, you know, you said a couple of things there that, um, that I think, you know, I'd like to expand on when you talk about the communication, you know, communication is a great way to overcome failure and it's a great way to avoid it too. Um, you know, I'm at 300 plus employees and I don't want to say worldwide, which the re that's a big world. And, you know, we didn't come back, we didn't come back to the office. We stayed remote and that's a better, better thing for us. But we refer to circular communication, meaning there's three components. So we have our employees, we have our clients and we have the company. And that information needs to flow both directions, clockwise and counterclockwise. It can't just go one direction. And, um, you know, I do things. So I, I do uh, about four, four times, three or four times a year, do these open town hall kind of things. And I used to actually do them in front of people, but I put out just like an anonymous, like a little type form, um, you know, thing where you can put in whatever you want and it doesn't, it doesn't track who you are. There's no email or in there. And I really lean into people. I'm like, just tell me. Mm. And I've kind of, I've developed a reputation for answering all the questions too, which is kind of funny because I think that mm. there's some people that know that they'll be like, Hey Matt, do you drink? Want to get wasted? I'm like, Hey, <laughs> it's, it's in there, you know, like some of it's funny, but, but with that, I think pushing for the honest and open feedback, what can we do to make this place better? And what are we doing wrong? And, you know, I look at, at trying to overcome that. There's an echo that kind of resounds in these questions, these comments, the input and the feedback that has all the answers in it, you know, in most cases. And that's and, and I think when you look at like the leadership perspective, it's like um, I think that making sure that people are heard and trying to create a place where that people want to work at. And what that does is it builds up this level of social capital hmm. in leadership that when you do, when I do do something wrong, I, just, I make mistakes all the time. It makes it a lot. And then when you lead and you say, hey, this was on me, this was something I could have done better, blah, 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 blah. You Because you have let everyone be heard, you let everyone's opinion come in, you get this collective like communal thing going on. It makes it a lot easier for you know, like I said, like I, I remember some of it, I look back at the pandemic and, you know, we're sitting there on March 15th in front of 150 people because we did an in-person town hall on that day. And I'm like, hey, I don't have all the answers and I, and I don't. This is uncharted territory for all of us, but we will figure this out. And I just need you to let this let this take place. Now, the next day we told everyone to not come back to the office. That's like how quickly we were working with that. But I think that part of what made us able to do that was the fact that we had let everyone, you know, like, Hey, look, we've, we've, we have a history of making decisions that aren't self-serving. They're community-based. We're here for the company. Cause like, once again, like if you have a shitty company, then you're not going to even have people to overcome failure around. It's just that simple. And, you know, there's a lot to be said with that. Um, all right. So a few things, cause you know, we're run, we're running out of time here. Um, I, you know, 
I just have to ask, like, what are what's been the most difficult thing about trying to reinvent a major food source? Hmm. It depends on like what era of the company we're talking about. Um, I mean, lately, just we'll go Hall of Fame. We'll go. We'll go all time. We'll go full timeline. Supply chain has been killing us. Like okay. just trying to get in the equipment and materials that we meet that we need. Okay. Fighting to get the reagents that we want. We ordered uh, a, a 250 liter bioreactor in January of 2022, and that is still not here. We just received the sleeve, like the the big part, basically that the that that everything goes in. Um, like last week. So a year and two months after we ordered it bonkers, like this is like one of the most important pieces of equipment that we can have. Like we even ordered the next stage up already beyond that, because we figured that this one would just be here by now. <clears throat> a lot of that's related to the steel shortage, manufacturing shortage. Like we're just having a bioreactor shortage in a pretty serious way. It's, it's out of our control. Like we don't have a like hardware engineering component to our company. You know, we've tried to just stick to iterating on what we need and what we know we can do that's different from everybody else that differentiates us. Um, it's just been challenging. And then beyond that, it's just been hard. I mean, you know, VCs talk a really tough game about like being people who are like creating the future. Um, and then they like, you know, step back and are like, well, you know, we're reacting to the market. And it's like, which one, which one is it? Are you like innovators? Are you creating the future or are you reacting to the present? Like pick, uh, I think that people should have to either just like admit that they're just investing, you know, that they're just growing their money or actually like get out there and say that they are like the courageous people who are doing something new and or who are doing something a little bit dangerous and interesting. Um, but you can't, you can't have both. You can't like claim the mantle of the future um, but just constantly be reacting to the past. So that, that's been a frustrating thing as of late. Oh, the shifting winds of VC sentiment. Yeah. They are swirling. I think <clears> it's <throat> probably a, probably an accurate way to track that weather pattern. It's a kind of joke. I remember right, right before the pandemic hit, I remember talking to a notable VC. Oh, I hate ed tech. Never going to get into that again. Three months later, I love ed tech. It's, a, yeah. it's, it's, you know, I'm just like, fuck. <clears throat> What are you gonna do? I don't know. I, I, know, I know too many people to get into. To, that might be a trigger warning attached there, because yeah, either write the check and get out of the way, or offer value and probably still get the fuck out of the way. So, by the way, for those of you that are wondering what a bioreactor is, I was too. So I asked GPT. A bioreactor is a device or system that's used to create a controlled environment for the growth and cultivation of biological cells, tissues, and organisms. And I could read a whole lot more, but you, much like me, probably won't know what the hell any of that means. Uh, but yeah, it's an it's a important thing when it comes to pharmaceutical manufacturing, food production, environmental engineering. Sounds like a sounds kind of like, not having those with what you do sounds a lot like a carpenter not having a hammer or a saw or maybe nails or all of them. So... Yeah, common reactors, f fermenters, tissue yeah. culture bioreactors, <laughs> photo, bio I don't know, I'm way out of my depth here. It's a big tank. It's it's a big yeah. tank that the cells go in. We put in a certain amount of cells and then they grow themselves. They divide until there's a lot more of them. Um, you put and that's stuff what a bioreactor in, is. you seal it up, it shakes it up, it stirs it up, it might heat it. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's probably about. Yeah, where if I'm you're at. thinking of like a fermenter at a beer brewery, you're totally that's exactly what right I was thinking of. Yeah. yeah, you got it. There, most people listening will get that part. It's how you make yeah. beer and wine and and toxins. Probably All the good many. stuff. Yeah. All I'm right. Really so here we are. Go ahead. It's, I have this like. Uh, when people like quote chat GPT in meetings, I, I like, I don't know. I've just been annoying my staff. Basically I'm, I'm very obnoxious at work. Um, I asked chat GPT, like what are the dangers of using chat GPT at work? And then I just read that out to people and see if they get that I'm reading that off of chat GPT's interface. So, you know, but, it, it, so I hear you on some of that. For me, it's been like when I'm sitting here on the show and we're sitting there talking about bioreactors or like, you know, just certain things. It's like, actually produces a, a much more feasible result. Now, on the downside of that, I remember talking the episode with Derek Lido. I asked GPD to give me a history of entrepreneurship, and then he proved the entire response to be wrong. It can sometimes be, and to be clear, I actually, I love it and I use it a lot just to like preface. I just like being annoying and I think it's fun to like use it to debunk itself. Um, yeah. but that also sort of states how useful it is. Um, it's really great for all sorts of stuff. And I, I ask questions for it and get good answers very frequently. The, the downside is like, it is not thinking about its responses. It can't do basic math. Like it can't yeah. even add, which I always find like really like weird. Cause it's just trying to pump out language. That, like you think sounds like the thing that you want. It has no comprehension of what it's saying. So I find that really interesting. I'm like, ah, you can tell me what a bioreactor is. And that was a very accurate description, but it can't add. As a, as a creator, I find it to be super helpful because if you like, you look at, I don't know, man, I, I think that's been the thing I've used it for the most. And then um, there are other things like I created a 40 page technical training manual for our salespeople and I did it in a few hours because nice. like a lot of that was like, you know, you look at like define what Java is, what's PHP, like all these things that I would have had to go get all these one-offs from, and yeah, it was super helpful in that regard. And then I, and then I asked it who I was and it gave me a, st I don't even know who it was talking about. Yeah. yeah. It, um, I, we asked it who one of um, our employees were and they said that she was me, which was nice. really bizarre. It said that she was the co-founder of Finless Foods alongside Brian Weiss. And we were like, Wait. So, yeah. So it did that for me. It said that Matt DeCourcy is the founder of Full Scale. And then it said, and then it mentioned a dude that I don't even know. And it said, we founded the company in 2014, which I mean, it was all off, but I've had, so we have a fun little community on, on at start a puzzle chat and Facebook. And I actually had someone that was uh, uh, putting it in. It was prompting GPT to give responses written in my tone and my voice. And it, the funny path was, Okay, make it more clickbaity and yeah. just like different stuff. I was like, all right, we're gonna we're gonna move on from this. All right, so here we are at the end of another compelling episode of Startup Hustle. It's a quick reminder: today's episode is powered by FullScale.io. There's a link in the show notes. It makes it real easy for you to build a team of software. Hey, look, let's take the science out of it. We did, we're doing all that on the front end of it. We help you build a team of people that, hey, man, how great would it be to have people show up and you knew they were good at science on, for, on day one? Uh, it would change the way the company runs. Yeah. Right. yeah. That's, that's our mission. <laughs> Much like yourself on some days, we're like, God, there's all these problems we need to solve. Let's just start with one or two. So uh, I mentioned as threatened earlier, we do the founders freestyle, which is 
I, it is a true freestyle, Michael. I, you know, I'm, for those of you that can't see the video that I can, which is all of you, Michael's got a, a bass guitar on the wall, so maybe he'll sing his response today. I doubt it, but it is a freestyle. So what about today's show stood out? What would you like to leave the audience with or anything that else you might say? It's your freestyle, bro. So here you go. I would say that um, what is a scientist? You know, I think that would be the the question because I know you and I talked about like basically using scientific processes for business. The answer to that, like, you know, is different depending on what we're talking about. Like in terms of being hired as a scientist and having that as your job title, I actually am not qualified. I don't have a PhD and you're supposed to have one in order to have that. But, you know, there's tons of pedagogy around like encouraging scientific thinking, even in kids. And, mm -hmm. you know, we're just big kids. So I think it counts for us as well. I am. Like, yeah, same. Like we should be working this into our everyday lives. Like what things are serving us? What things are not serving us? What are the problems in our lives? How do we examine them honestly and openly, even if it hurts to like look at, even if it's not fun, even if it's frustrating, how do we look at that, see it for really what it is or get an outside perspective? Who can we talk to to figure that out? Since we started this company so young that needed to be built into the process immediately, building up the right investors, the right advisors, people who can actually like, you know, give us real feedback on what we're not doing correctly so that we can correct it. Um, that like change in my life happened for me in starting Finless in being able to incorporate scientific thinking, not just from college, but into my everyday life. Um, and it started off with the company, but now it's like, I'm always thinking about things that way. I'm like, you know, uh, I'm not feeling great. My stomach's off. What did I do? You know, I'm not, I'm feeling like low energy today. What's wrong with that? Like even just sort of basic health stuff to my relationships with people, what's serving me, what's not serving me and why, and like, how do I find patterns in that? Uh, it's, it's thrown me into therapy, which has been very helpful in like a bunch of different directions. And I recommend to anyone founding anything, um, but yeah, I just think that the power of scientific thinking in your life can do wonders. It doesn't have to just be relegated to people holding pipettes. It can be anything. Uh, it can be business. Well said, sir. I think I look back at today's episode. I think that the scientific approach is is strong and kind of look at that. Like it's all an experiment, folks. I mean, it really is. And and regardless of how positive you are that an outcome is going to occur, um, it, it, they could end up in a number of different places. And I think that that's important. Uh, we also talked a little bit about ChatGPT, so I asked ChatGPT to write a song about a startup that reinvented seafood, and it said there's a startup that's changing the game and bringing seafood to a whole new stage. Sustainability is their aim, and they're making waves. They're reinventing seafood, creating something new with a mission to make a difference, and they're seeing it through. Um, yeah, I could go on, but I will save the ears <laughs> of our audience, so... Yeah, doing the important things with AI today here on the show, like writing songs about Finless and and the foods that they're creating. Once again, man, I want to say thanks for uh, uh, doing environmental stuff. I, I'm a big fan of, of anyone that's showing up and doing that. And, you know, I mentioned I'm going to give this a shot because, you know, one of the things is I actually love seafood. But the problem is I live in Kansas. There's no fresh seafood here because there's no sea here. And then some of it is, I don't know, man, the seas, the ocean's kind of gross and dirty, man. Let's quit fucking it up, people. Like, that'll make me happier. So I'm just going to kind of leave on that note. That's your words of wisdom, people. Quit ruining the ocean. I'm out. Yeah. I'm out. 
Startup Hustle is brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time. We do it.